We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the Bee Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. It really is that way because once you start tasting that as the teacher, You say, this is why I came into education. This is why I'm here doing this work is because I want to have these conversations with kids. Dr. Chris Jones here and welcome to Seeing to Lead, a show designed to help leaders increase their ability to effectively support, engage, and empower their staff through intentional practices so that they create an environment where everyone reaches their greatest level of success. On Seeing to Lead, communication rules the day as we hear voices from both teachers and leaders in an effort to examine perspectives, highlight misunderstandings, and provide steps to ultimately bridge the gap between what teachers need and provide through thoughtful dialogue. This show is about amplifying voices, creating understanding, and providing information to help everyone continually improve. I want to personally thank you for taking the time. Now, let's get to getting better. Jethro Jones, 2017 NASSP Digital Principal of the Year, is a former principal and host of Transformative Principal and co-founder of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics. Jethro is the author of the book School X, How Principals Can Design a Transformative School Experience for Students, Teachers, parents, and themselves. Jethro currently consults schools and districts on redesign efforts that don't seem like another program. Jethro has worked as a principal at all K-12 levels, including a prison school, a district coach, distance learning team lead, and English teacher. I'm super excited to have Jethro on here today because I've worked with him before, and he is absolutely a fantastic educator. So welcome, Jethro. Hey, thank you, Chris. Happy to be here. And that part about being the distance learning team lead, that was way back before we knew what a pandemic was. That was in 2009, if you can believe it. That's, <laughs> I can believe it. Somebody like you, yes, I can believe it. And uh, we were just talking pre-show about some of the things with the pandemic that we should have already known and been working on. But so we may, we may even get to that a little later too. Yeah, for sure. But you, you know, you left being an administrator Um, where you did a lot of good work uh, following what you've been doing, and you became a consultant. So you're still clearly a leader, if I could get my own words out. So if you could just take a few minutes and get us to that point and explain to us 
why you do what you do, why you've moved to consulting. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. I love um, talking about the work that I'm doing because it really is incredibly exciting. And what I realized was that, like you said, there are a lot of things we should have known before. And there were a lot of things that a lot of people did know before. And there have been great people out there doing amazing things with kids for years, decades. And and really what what I'm trying to do is to add my voice and my experience to those same kind of things. And what I appreciate about the work that I'm doing now is that I get to focus more on the growth and development of leaders who in turn work on the growth and development of students. And I loved being a principal. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it immensely. And I'm just excited to be able to continue doing that kind of work just in a different space as a consultant at this point. And I, it gives me time to do stuff like the Center for Cyber Ethics, which is something that I'm really passionate about. But I could just never, I would never have had time to put that together if I was still in a building. I mean, you know, as a principal, it just, it takes a lot of time. And to do it well, you have to put in the time. And, um, and this way I get to get to diversify my interests a little bit better and do uh, more things that I enjoy doing. True to the idea of growth and development. You're working on your own growth and development. That's right. It, it, it never stops. And I don't think that it should. And that's one of the things that I think we get wrong in education. And I'll just put this right out there at the beginning. We think that a learning happens within the four walls of the school. And to me, that is just the wrong approach. I think what we need to do is recognize that learning happens everywhere. And all of that learning should be honored and recognized. Even if it's not an assignment by a teacher, it, it still counts. And, you know, we talk about learning loss from the pandemic. And I think that is the biggest load of baloney in the world because kids have not lost any learning. In fact, they've learned things that we have no idea how much they've learned. And some of those things are really good. And some of those things are really not good. And the reality is, is they've still been learning. And it's only learning loss to us who are judging them unfairly and have been judging them unfairly for 100 years saying you're not doing what we think you should be doing. And that to me is a big problem in our system right now. That doesn't need to be that way. I always like to say when when people talk about learning loss, and I, I argue the other side about what students have actually gained is, you know, all those other aspects of education and development as an individual that we always talk about, those discrete skills, things like that, that we always talk about students need and now they need even more, but we never explicitly teach. It's almost kind of like, you know, we expect them to pick them up along the way, or if we just make it a little harder, they'll learn more perseverance, more organizational skills, things like that. But we don't we don't actually teach it, which is odd for an educational institution that says people can learn things if they just teach it. Right. Well, and I, I don't know that teaching them explicitly is the right way to teach those essential skills that some people saw, call soft skills, because it's kind of hard to say, you know, I'm going to teach you how to persevere by giving you something really difficult that's almost impossible that you feel like you can never accomplish and then I'm going to teach you how to actually do it. That That's kind of a hard thing for us to justify as educators who, who you know, try to not do harm to kids, right? So right, right, it's right. tough to put them in an impossible situation. However, they're in impossible situations all the time. And, 
we can teach that stuff, if not explicitly. The kind of um, approach that I take is called student-driven learning, which is where the the teacher goes from being a, a sage on a stage to what most people are familiar with, which is a, a guide on the side. But then I say that the real goal is that the teacher should be a compass among us, which means that the teacher is the one who's helping the kid find their North Star find north and know whether or not they're going in the right direction. It doesn't mean that the kid is going north, but that they know where north is, they know where the right direction is, and then they can navigate off of that. And so that type of approach, which I greatly thank David Trust for helping me make that connection, that kind of approach really does help you teach those essential skills in the moment in a powerful, powerful way. I love that idea, the whole idea of the compass among us. Let me ask you, let me just, because I want to dig into that more. I think that's that's such a great thing because everybody's used to sage on the stage or guide on the side. And that's been around for a long time. You and I were talking just before this about a captive audience with a sage on the stage and how many places that occurred even more so than normal during the pandemic because, you know, tied to the computer screen and things like that. How does a leader for all the leaders listening to this, how does a leader move teachers in a meaningful way out of that mindset from stage on, stage on the stage to guide on the side, but then to take that further step that you're talking about is compass among us? Because that, that really is a mindset, an idea of control and, and things like that. So how does a leader help teachers achieve that? So the thing that I think is really important about that is recognizing that we all have gifts and abilities. We all have strengths and weaknesses. And when we recognize that, what we should really do is lean in to those strengths and gifts and abilities that we have. And it's, it's tough to get teachers who have been trained to be the sage on the stage to move to a mindset of being a compass. But the reality is, is that when you, when you think about why you became a teacher, not many people became a teacher so they could stand in front of a room and lecture. Now, some people did, and that's okay. And that may be their gift and their strength. I had a teacher who I could listen to him talk all day long. A good example of that is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which is a great podcast. If you've never listened to it, it's wonderful. It's like four and a half hours each episode of one tiny little aspect of history that he just explodes and makes into this big, huge thing. That guy should be teaching that way because that's his gift. It's wonderful. And he should do that for sure. However, I don't think that most of us have the gift of engaging and captivating someone with just talking for 45 to 90 minutes or however long our class period is. And it's not often what our strength is. It's most of the time, not why we came into education. When I train people on this, I go out and yeah, at conferences or at districts where I'm working, I ask them why they became a teacher and what they think led them to that point. And almost always the idea of a light bulb going off in the kid's eyes and being able to see that is what they talk about being a, a moment in their life. That's what they want to be able to do. And the reality is, is that when you're standing up in front of the class, giving assignments and, and teaching from the front of the room, you rarely have the opportunity to see that. And so I simply ask teachers, do you want to have more light bulb experiences? And almost always the answer is yes. In order to do that, do you need to be having one-on-one -on -one conversations or one-on a couple conversations or one-on many? And they almost always inevitably say, I need to have more one-on-one -on -one or one-on small group discussions because that's where the light bulb experiences happen. 
And so then it's a matter of, well, what do you do with the other kids so you can talk to kids one-on-one? Because it's hard when you have 32 kids in your class. And so we develop what I call student-driven learning, which is a way to have students drive their own learning so it's not all on you as the teacher. And Mike Anderson calls it using content as your playground, which is one of my favorite phrases because it's powerful to be able to take what your content is and let it be a playground. The reality is, Chris, I'm kind of rambling here. Let me me bring it to a point. You're fine though. (laughs) The reality is we have so much content, we can never get through it all. So we should just stop trying. It's ridiculous to try to do it. I, I hate it when I'm in a class and the teacher says, no more questions. I need to get through the rest of this lesson. And it's like, oh, the, the whole point of the lesson is for kids to ask questions and understand and learn and, and get a deeper knowledge. So if you use content as your playground, if you're teaching history, let's say U.S. history, you have from before 1776 until today. That is your playground. You can talk about anything during that time period and still get history Because when you're talking about history, you're not talking about dates and times and facts. You're talking about why people made the decisions that they're making and how do we not make the same stupid decisions that they made? Because we have the benefit of hindsight and seeing that they made stupid decisions. So how do we not do the same thing? Or if they make great decisions, how do we make great decisions like they did? So I agree with that 100%. That's that, and that's a great phrase um, as I'm playing with it over and over in my mind about content as your playground. But I think about, so think about leaders and teachers that listen to this. And some of the pushback that I would get or that I would hear from that from the listeners is, okay, that works for social studies. That works for English. What about your quantitative subjects? What about math, your tested subjects, right? Science, things like that. If I've got standards, if I'm an AP teacher and I know that test is coming up and I've got standards I've got to hit, How does content remain the playground when you have that concern, that stress about meeting those standards? So that that is a great question. I'm so glad you asked that because um, (laughs) what is the purpose of an AP class? To get you to pass the AP test. That's the purpose because you're not taking the AP class just for fun. You're taking it so that you can get college credit. And the way you get college credit is by passing this test. So I, I set AP classes as an aside, because you have a very specific purpose. There's a very clearly defined expectation as it relates to the test that AP teachers understand and know, and they should definitely push towards that. Now, I know some AP teachers who can do it um, in a student-driven way, and that's all well and good. But the reality is, it's not about depth in that situation. It's about passing the test so that you can get college credit. And in my mind, you're doing malpractice as a teacher if you're not getting all of kids to the point where they can pass that test, because that is the whole point. So that's a separate entity. But let's talk about math, for example, which is we need to know math. We need to understand it. And that's all well and good. And I I recently interviewed uh, someone from FICYCLE, F-I-C-Y-C-L-E, and it is a nonprofit that is that is taking the approach of teaching higher level math, high school specifically, to students using personal finance as the curriculum. So rather than saying, here's how we're going to, you know, we're going to, here's this book and here are the chapters and we're going to teach it this way. They take everything from an approach of personal finance as the way to teach everything else. Now, that's all well and good. And that is engaging and interesting. And that's, that's fine. But the reality is, is that with content as your playground, 
Joe Bowler would say about math, that you do low floor, high ceiling math problems that give every kid an opportunity to engage with the content. That is certainly a great way to do it. But there are other ways that you can do it. One of those is to not isolate math into its own subject, but to rather work on an interdisciplinary team to bring math into the things that you're doing. So for example, in uh, my middle school in Fairbanks, where we did this, uh, the team, the three teachers got together of math, science, and social studies. And they brought the ELA person in there for the writing piece also. So they got, it was actually four teachers, not three. So they got together and they said, we're going to create these underwater habitats. And the, the goal is to create an underwater habitat. And then they used science, history, math, and English to then design these underwater habitats. So in order to have oxygen, they need to learn how to do that underwater. To, in order to use math, they had to figure out how big they were going to be, how much pressure of air per square inch they would need to funnel into there to make it work, all, all that kind of stuff. They had to learn about different ways that people have lived in the past uh, in a minimalist environment for history. And then for English, they had to be able to communicate because that's really what English class is, is communication. They had to communicate what was working. And so instead of saying, okay, everybody has to learn this specific thing, you say, accomplish this goal, design this project, make this thing. And then the teacher, because the reality is only teachers care about the standards. No student ever cares about standards. So the teachers who do care about the standards will follow behind the kids and will attach standards to what they're doing because the teachers actually know what the standards are and the kids have no idea. They're just doing the thing and the teacher can go behind them and say, here are the standards that they have learned. And if by chance, because you sometimes don't design it perfectly, a student doesn't learn all the things you need them to learn, then you can discreetly, directly, explicitly teach them that one standard they have to know and then move on with your life. And let me tell you, if that takes six weeks for them to do this little project, which, you know, when you start thinking about having four classes where they're working on the same thing in four classes and they're bringing all these different things in, just imagine how much more they learn because they have all this time and all this focus on this one thing. It's pretty remarkable. It's remarkable how much they learn and it's incredibly efficient with your time. Yes. I mean, we talk about scheduling, about how to make an efficient schedule so that the kids get what they need, time on learning, all that stuff. When you start doing that, and, you know, for, for lack of a better term, project-based learning or inquiry-based learning, when you're doing that, you've got, like you said, so much more focus and an incorporation and more meaningful mm -hmm. to the students because they're making those connections. The other thing that you get, you mentioned time on learning. So when kids come into class every day, if you've ever done shadow a student, you know how much time is wasted in a regular school day. A ton. But when kids are doing student-driven learning, which is a combination of personalized learning, project-based learning, place-based learning, and inquiry-based learning, all those things combined into one. When you do student-driven learning, kids don't need you to get the class together to be on task because they're already on task because they already know what they're supposed to be doing. So they come in, this class starts, and they start working right away. And then they stay after class to finish up the thing that they're doing and hurry to their next class where they can start doing, continue working on it. And 
And sometimes what you recognize is that why do we even have classes? We should just have all these kids in an area and they can just be working on this for five hours a day. That's actually what we started doing. And then the break between classes was basically a time for them to go to the bathroom and just take a little brain break. And, and that's what it became because they would go into the library where we had everybody situated. They would start working. They would leave during the break. They would come back, continue working, leave, come back, continue working, go to lunch. And it was an amazing thing to see them all working together in this hive of activity that you just can't replicate if you're trying to divide kids up because you do need to have some time for deep work. You need to do need to have some time for deeper learning. No, that's that's fantastic. That I that whole idea of, and I, I like your description calling it a hive, where basically, and and we talk about maker spaces, we talk about flexible seating. Um, it's just on a larger scale what you're talking about, and it's so doable if we can wrap our heads around it. Um, at least in my opinion, because I, you know, it's funny doing a bunch of interviews for different positions and things like that that we've got open at the school here. Every time you talk to a teacher, they talk about how their subject is connected to everything in the world. So anything that they do, if they're teaching science, everything in life, Jethro, is about science. And if you talk about social studies, the social studies teacher says everything in life is about social studies. Well, if everything is about everything, then why can't we put it all together? What we're, it's counterintuitive what we're doing as far as splitting things up and, and differentiating between subjects. Mm-hmm. Because the, the kids don't need different subjects. The adults do. And, and that's one of the areas where we struggle. Because if we were to think of it differently and say, okay, kids need, kids need to understand all this stuff. And it's all interconnected anyway. Then let's give them opportunities to see how it's interconnected. And that's not what we do in schools because that's not easy for adults. Because it's harder for adults to do that because that's not how we've been trained. But if you do take that approach, then you quickly see how things really are interrelated and how it makes sense for us to combine math, science, social studies, and English all together as one. Not to mention woodshop and makerspaces and all that kind of stuff that come in very easily. So I'm hearing all kinds of professional development. However, we have professional development. We do professional development on different things. And a lot of places that I'm talking to, um, and I know that we do it, is teacher-centered or based on what teachers need. It's not a sit-and-get type of thing where they're, they're spending their time better off correcting papers. But this type of stuff takes professional development. How can a leader get that type of professional development to teachers? Because if it's a mindset and if that's the way they're trained, you're almost talking about a whole reprogramming effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I don't like the term reprogramming. Right, because I don't right. think that humans uh, should be programmed or be reprogrammed. <laughs> but, but, but there is a, this element of mindset. And so there is a very specific way that I go about teaching this to people. And if you just start talking about the things that I was, that I was giving as examples, people are overwhelmed and it's too much. And so I, I take a, st- a big step back and I say, this is what we're going to focus on. It starts with voice and choice. So if you give kids voice and choice as you start, and that's voice and choice in practice, product, and presentation. Those are the three things. The practice is how they they learn it, how they do it, how they figure it out. The product is what what they actually do to 
what they actually create in the end. So it could be a report, it could be an essay, but it could also be a spoken word thing. They could just say what they've learned and that's okay. And then presentation is kind of like product, but there's there's a subtle difference is it, it brings in an element of design and thoughtfulness about how to show what you're learning. And, and that's what we want them to be able to do. So if you just stand up in the front of the room and blurt out, this is everything I learned, that's not really that effective. Nobody wants to sit through that, <laughs> to right, be honest. Right, right. But if you were to do that as a, as a slideshow presentation, or you created a model to dis- to show it and you you pointed to the different things and talked about each of the different things, or you did a spoken word thing that was more like a, a rhyme and a poem than just an, an explanation, or if you wrote a song or whatever, then and that's where the presentation comes in a, a little bit differently. You may create something like an essay, but you may present that in a different way than just writing it on paper. And so, so having voice and choice in those areas is a really essential part to start out. Because once teachers start giving up some of that control, then, then they start seeing that, oh, this is actually kind of fun. And so, um, so then you move into giving kids more time to do this kind of stuff. And I call this genius ideas. And this is where Google 20% time or uh, genius hour or whatever it is, you start incorporating those because still that is within the power of the teacher in the classroom. And they can or cannot do this, you know, depending on what they choose to do. And, and some people are going to resist it and push back against it. And that's, you know, they, they have to recognize their strengths as well. And they may not be ready for it. And so they may be a different level than some other teachers. But that's where you're, as the principal, then giving permission for people to do this. And it doesn't take anything else besides a teacher just saying, I want to do it. And, and that's, that's when you start to reach critical mass. And then once that happens, then you get into a what I call school-supported, where the school is now starting to change its, its structures and bell schedules and things like that to allow for more of this. It may even get to the point where you have teams or cohorts of kids that go to the same classes together. So you can do more of that interdisciplinary teaming stuff. Then you move to the next level, which is student initiated, where students are starting to say, these are the things that we'd like to see. These are the things that we'd like to be involved in. And then finally, you get to the student driven point where students really are driving their own learning. They really are making the changes that they need to, to have these structures exist and to have the support from teachers and adults to allow that to happen. So all starting from voice and choice, it it reminds me of, and I don't know if you've ever read the book, um, Empower and Launch, about the launch cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, it's design thinking, basically. And um, we did a book study with it. And one of the teachers did that with their students where they had a voice in what they wanted to learn and choice as long as it was relatable back to the standards or something that they had learned during the year. So not whole in, but a step in the right direction. And the teacher did come back. The, the teacher's biggest issue was assessing it because there's still that tie to assessment. But the teacher did come back and say, it was awesome. She she gave them the like the 20% time Fridays they could work on whatever they wanted to work on and came back with positive reports about it. So, you know, as soon as that one step occurs, it does become like a set of dominoes, at least I've noticed. Absolutely. Yep. It it really is that way because once you start tasting that as the teacher, you say, This is why I came into education. This is why I'm here doing this work, is because 
I want to have these conversations with kids. Now, as far as assessing goes, it, it, it is more complicated to assess. I'm not going to lie because hopefully every kid is doing something different. And so they have different experiences and they learn different things. And that's, that's okay. Like we don't need to be afraid of that because do you know what actually happens every single day in our schools where we're trying to teach everybody the exact same thing? Kids learn different things and you know what? It's okay. And, and a lot of times teachers will, will give this argument of, well, I can't possibly do that because then kids will come in at all different levels. Well, guess what? Kids already come in at all different <laughs> levels. Yeah. So it's not like <laughs> every kid is coming in exactly where they're supposed to be. And it's not like every kid understands everything they've ever been taught and can verbalize it or express it on an assessment right away. Kids have always been and always will be at different levels. And rather than running from that and saying that's not good, we need to embrace that and recognize it and allow kids to continue to develop their strengths, their gifts, their abilities, and continue to work on their weaknesses so that their weaknesses eventually become strengths. You know, it's funny that you said that because I, I had a guest on this show earlier, probably about 10 episodes ago, and her name's Nyree Clark. And she said, if you, if you get an assessment back and they're all the same, you've done something wrong as a teacher because all the kids are at a different place. And I think that's important for leaders to understand as well is that the teachers are looking at, and you touched on this, are all at a different place in the whole spectrum of how they approach class and things. And it, it has a lot to do with training and, and so forth um, and what they were taught and, and when they came up. But leaders have to understand that too. What I do want to do, though, is talk to you a little bit more about that because this seems to be a lot about growth and development, how we approach it. I just want to stop here for a second for a word from our sponsors. Today's podcast is brought to you by Better Leaders, Better Schools, who put out a great newsletter every Sunday called The Weekend Resource. This newsletter provides incredible value, sharing tremendous leadership resources from across a variety of resources. And I personally love the inspiring quote at the end of each weekend resource, because I can use it with my staff. Subscribe by visiting betterleadersbetterschools.com forward slash weekend dash resource. I use Anchor to distribute the Seeing to Lead podcast because I find it to be the best tool to suit my busy schedule. Anchor has everything I need all in one place, offers hands-free distribution to everywhere podcasts are heard, and is free to use. I can use anywhere from some to all of its features based on what I need at the time. On top of all that, you can be mobile, recording, editing, and distributing all right from your phone. You can also easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So go download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. And we're back with Jethro, and we were just talking about how this show is really kind of shaping up into the whole idea of growth and development. And when I when I think about that and the importance of that all the way from students to staff and especially leaders, I think about my own growth and development and different things I do. And, and just this podcast, you know, sometimes I feel guilty sitting here talking to people like you, Jethro, because I feel like I'm the one benefiting from all these podcasts that I do because I'm learning from it. And I continue to learn. So it's almost like a selfish feeling. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I totally do. And, and I'm so glad that you bring that up because that is, that is so key to this student-driven learning that if, 
if we help kids see that school, that learning happens everywhere they are, then they can really benefit from that. So I have a podcast, Transformative Principle, that I've been doing for eight years now. And I have 440 episodes about that I've recorded, which is just amazing. And I can't even believe it. But let me tell you the secret of how I did those episodes. Every time I had a question about what I was doing at work, I was like, I need to find somebody who can answer this question for me. And then I would find someone who could, and I would interview them for my podcast. And then I would release that out to other people. So the beauty of what you're doing is it's not selfish because you're sharing it. Because you're not just holding it to yourself, but you're putting it out there for other people to hear. So I did the same thing. And i that's how I became a great principal is I interviewed 400 other leaders to figure out what it was that I was missing and how to do better at my job. And I just, i that is truly what I did. I i said, what is this? What is going on that's, that's difficult for me right now? I'm going to find somebody who has the answer and then I'm going to interview them. And so you can literally listen to my podcast and hear my own growth and development based on the people that I'm talking to and the questions that I'm asking them. And for me, the last question I ask in every episode is, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal like you or a transformative leader if they're not necessarily a, a school principal? But <laughs> sometimes I need to go outside of education to find what I need. So the beauty of that is, is that I, I call it a podcast to PhD where I basically, in my mind, because I've been learning in dog years, have a PhD in education based on the people that I've interviewed. Now, the academics and the ivory towers do not like me saying that because they don't think that I do have a PhD. But to me, I most certainly do. And if you listen to my podcast, all 400 something episodes, then you're going to have a PhD also. And it's not going to be recognized by any university out there, but it is going to be I would say the same amount of learning that you would get if you were to do a, a regular PhD program. Yeah, no, there's a, and I'm, I'm a regular listener to your podcast. So, you know, I, I would agree with a ton of information comes out of that. And something you said triggered what we've been talking about with learning occurring outside of the four walls of the classroom is that there are guests and there are a decent amount of guests on your podcast that aren't in education that have that viewpoint from outside of education, because really we tend to get boxed in thinking education and educational leadership has to do with how the school runs and what goes on in a school, but there's education occurring all the time. So your corporations, um, people that do startups that are entrepreneurs, things like that, they're educating people as they go along. So they're educational leaders. So they have a lot to say that is useful whenever we're looking at different mm -hmm. types of problems. Yeah, they don't know how to run a school, but a lot of the things that they do know how to do can help inform what we're doing. So in the masterminds that I run with principals where we're coaching on these types of things, we have a rule that we don't read education-based books in the mastermind because we want to go through that difficult process of translating things from other areas into educational speech. So for example, we wrote, we read a book last year called The Courage to be Disliked, which um, has quickly become one of my favorite books. And what I love about that is that the second chapter is called Deny Trauma. Trauma doesn't exist. And we talk a lot about trauma in education, and I train on trauma as well. <laughs> and so this book is saying trauma doesn't exist. 
And it what it's basically saying is that traumatic things can happen, but you decide how you're going to react to that. And if you want to call that trauma, then that's going to define what that is for you. But if you want to call that a learning experience, then that that's in your power to do. And it absolutely is. And being able to read things that are not only focused on education helps give us a broader view. And I write books about education. So it's like, I, I understand the, the, the silliness maybe of that, but I also recognize the, the wisdom in getting our information from other places and then translating it into education speak so that we can apply it to our daily lives. That's so powerful because the mastermind that I happen to be in, we do the same thing. And reading books outside of education and then trying to apply them, it's actually one of the things that I ask in my interviews, in my final round of interviews of candidates, you know, what books are you reading and how do you apply that to teaching? How does that impact you as a teacher? Just because you have to step out of what you're typically doing, you have to look at it from the outside or from a different viewpoint to truly understand everything that's going on or to truly grow or come up with a different perspective. The trauma piece is so powerful because we talk about mindsets and how you accept things. I even try to say, like you said, react to a situation. I, I try to not use that word react and use the word respond because react to me just personally seems like a knee jerk type of thing and, and lends me more to not thinking through or accepting something at face value instead of really trying to put a different perspective on it that that works for me cognitively or emotionally. Yeah, I like that. And and I, I appreciate that because I, I agree that that uh, react is like a knee-jerk response. And so my knee-jerk response to anything that happens, I hope is not, this is trauma because then I become the victim, you know? And so for example, the coronavirus, which um, many people would describe as collective trauma, um, has been very challenging for a lot of people. But I want to tell you, Chris, it was the best thing in the world for my family. We just loved it. It brought us closer together as a family, helped us understand, respect, and love each other better, and was wonderful. Like the pandemic was a huge blessing in our life, and I'm so grateful for it because it it, it did so much to help us be better. And and I mean, I'm really sad that people died. That's really tragic. I'm sad that people got sick. I know people who have gotten sick from it. But at the same time, for our family, who thankfully didn't get sick, but experienced other reactions to it, I'm just so grateful because it really did strengthen us as a family, which I think is so important. There are, I'm so glad you said that out loud because yes, it, there were tragic things that happened, but there are so many nuggets out there. If you talk to people about how they benefited from it and, and you know, collectively really as a society, big picture, We've been saying for years, we need to slow down, take stock of what we have and be present with the ones we love. And this afforded, this God-awful tragedy afforded us all that opportunity. If we took it, which speaks to the idea of what you're saying as far as, you know, whether you accept it as trauma or see it as trauma or label it that way or label it as an opportunity, a learning experience. My family... Does, I, I got back to bike riding because you could go out and do that. We, we grew a big garden and now we have a garden every year. You know, just different things that we do together as a family, like you said, where we're more present in each other's lives. And 
like we were talking pre-show about, did it really take a pandemic to start to change education or to show education where or how it needed to change for real this time? Did it really take a pandemic to tell us all that we really do need to slow down and be more present in people's lives? And are we going to take that lesson to heart and continue doing that? I mean, that's the real question. When things do, quote unquote, go back to normal and, you know, sports are open and everybody's in all these activities every night. I mean, are we just going to go back to that or are we going to change our approach to how much stuff we sign our kids up for and how much pressure we put on them to do these other things? Or are we going to recognize that spending time and giving attention to those that are most important really has a lot of inherent value? I think that's something that leaders need to keep in mind when they're working with people with them. To encourage people to do that, you talk about that mindset and to and to really work with teachers to understand that not only do they have to do it and to be present and to to make sure they're taking care of themselves, but also be cognizant of the fact that students need to do that. You know, it's very easy to fall into that trap of teachers saying, well, I got to take care of myself. Okay, students, get this homework done, get this assignment done. I know there are some other things going on in your life that I'm, I may be fully aware of, maybe not be fully aware of, may not even know, but really you need to get this done. I, I was talking to you before about how um, I got rid of midterms and finals. Well, with that came, I got rid of homework over vacations. There's no reason students should be doing homework over vacations. Teachers talk about how they need a break to recharge their batteries because they're tired, because it's go, go, go. Well, students are the same way. So, you know, we really have to make sure if we're going to send that message, we need to send it to everybody. Yeah. Well, um, my philosophy on homework is that it is immoral and unethical for a school to dictate how kids use their time at home after school. And that was my opinion before the pandemic. And that uh, is still my opinion. And I think that if we had taken that opinion um, about schools not dictating how kids use home time, um, I think our, our pandemic response would have been a lot better. And, and let me explain that just a little bit more because I think, I think it's key. If we would have said, we are going to be available to help you if you are struggling with what to do with your kids or their time at home, then we would have taken a service-minded approach. Instead, we took a mandated mindset and we said, in my district at least, you need to log on to the computer at 8.30 in the morning and you need to stay on until 2.30 in the afternoon. And you can take a lunch break that's 30 minutes or something like that. And to me, that was the wrong approach because that doesn't work for every family. And what we need to do is recognize where our families are at and do something that serves them. For example, if both parents work and both parents are frontline workers, perhaps those are the kids we should have brought back to school first. We did it wrong, in my opinion, in almost every situation. We should have taken those that don't have family support at home and brought them back first. And that should have been the priority. Also, those with special needs, like my oldest daughter with Down syndrome, she needed to be back in school because she that's where that structure, that routine is something that she really needs in order to be successful. We should have taken those things into consideration and paid attention to who we were serving and how. If you have uh, a stay-at-home mom and a dad who works from home, like my family, <laughs> like we didn't need our kids to go to school because we could take care of them ourselves and not just take care of them, but we could take care of their education, 
ourselves and feel very confident that we didn't need support from the school. When the pandemic hit, we lived in Alaska still and our neighbor across the street, her dad was a pilot and was still flying to different villages in Alaska to do deliveries, to provide support, things like that. Her mom worked in a, a medical office. And so she was still going into work every day because she still needed to work. And so this girl across the street needed more support than my family did, but her family got the exact same support as my family did. And and what we need to do is recognize that some people need more support and that's okay. And we give them that support and we give the families that don't need support some permission to not feel like they have to do everything that we say. And that's okay too. I know that's controversial opinion, but we really need to look at who we're serving and serve them in the way that they need to be served, not just give the same thing to everybody. I, I would agree with you 100% about looking at how they need to be served and not giving the same thing to everybody. And I have to tell you the the homework, I think I've thought that from a student's perspective since I was in middle school yeah. about I, I go to school all day, uh, then I go home, I go home, which obviously wasn't a popular opinion when I was growing up in middle school and still really isn't when you get to the high school spot. Yeah, but, it's true. Hey, we're, we're getting to the end of this. And um, I always ask two questions at the end of every podcast. The first one is about, you know, if you weren't a leader, who not what would you be, but I, I'm pretty sure anybody listening to this is kind of clear on it that you've moved into consulting because that's what you would be. I would still argue that you're still leading because of uh, all the knowledge that you're giving here. I would also argue that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Glad to know you're on board. The second one that I that I am going to put to you because it's, it's really important that people listen to this, hear this um, from a value standpoint. Well, let me answer the first one first because I have a a little nuanced thought on that. So leadership is not about being in a position of authority. Leadership is about inspiring people to be their best selves. And so if that's what I'm doing, then yes, I think that I'm definitely a leader. And my life experiences of being in leadership, official leadership roles from the time that I was 12 years old, um, I have had many opportunities to be a leader in a role. But where I feel like I have had the most effect is when I wasn't in that leadership role, but I was still leading, which was helping people become the best version of themselves. So yes, if I wasn't a school principal, I would still be a leader, even without that title. When I was a teacher, I strove to be a leader still. As a consultant, I'm still striving to be a leader. And trust me, I'm not perfect at it. This isn't me blowing smoke myself, but I try... I really try hard to serve people and help them become the best version of themselves. And I would, I would say you do, you do a really good job of that. So, but thanks for putting that nuance. And it reminds me of um, Neely Bartley. She wrote a book about leading from any position and how you don't need that title to be a leader. So, you know, I, I definitely agree with that sentiment. The last one though, is what's the most important piece of advice you would give to leaders as they work to support, engage, and empower. And I'll say those that follow them. Typically, it's, you know, teachers thinking of the principal role and all that. But what's that golden nugget? Look, if you, if, if you strip it down, what's the most important thing you need to do? Yeah, the, the most important thing in my mind is that you identify someone's strength, their gift, their thing that they were put on this earth to do. And then you give them every opportunity to do that thing. And so 
you find what that is and and you help them do that as much as possible. So for example, I will use a a personal story that actually goes against everything that I've said in this podcast so far. <laughs> why, why not wrap it up like that? <laughs> so I had a teacher whose great skill was uh, being in front of and engaging a group of students. One-on-one, he wasn't that great. I'm not going to lie. Doing For him, the beauty was interacting with the whole class. And if he had 15 kids in his class, he could touch and impact every single one of them by standing up at the front of the room and conversing with them. I actually had two teachers who were like that. So the first teacher uh, was a woman. And I got her into a intervention type role as a teacher where she was doing intervention all the time. This woman was amazing. She got these kids to move two to three grade levels in math. And almost all of her work was around mindset. It was incredible seeing what she was able to do. And she was able to reach every single one of them in this small group class. This other teacher, we didn't have the capacity to put him in that kind of a role. But when he had an opportunity to go to a alternative high school where he would have that opportunity. I, I pushed so hard for him to get that job, even though I hated losing him as a teacher, I knew that was where he needed to be. So even though sometimes it means you, you don't, you don't get to do things in the way you want to, you have to recognize what their strengths are and get them into positions where they can utilize their strengths. For the female teacher, it was an intervention class. She did amazing. For this male teacher, it was getting him to a different school. And I miss him terribly, but it was the right thing to do to get him where he could use those gifts. So find someone's gifts and then exploit them to the max and help them do as much of that thing that is their gift as possible. Awesome. You know, you've you've said a ton today. We've we've traveled the whole gamut. It's been about growth and development mostly, but I'm sure some people are probably going to want to follow up with you after this. If not myself, I'm already thinking, hey, when can we do a second episode? Yeah. <laughs> but um, how do people get in touch with you? What's the best way to get in touch with you, Jethro? Well, if you're still listening and you actually do want to get in touch with me, here's what I suggest you do. You go to schoolx.me slash free book. And as a thank you for listening to this whole episode, I will send you a free copy of my book in like paper format, unless you are international and then it's too expensive. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I will send you a digital copy if you're international. But I, my book School X is about redesigning schools and it's powerful addresses, helping teachers, helping students, helping parents and helping yourself. So uh, schoolx.me slash free book. And then uh, I'll send you an email asking you to fill out your email or your shipping address and information. And then that way we can start a conversation there. Awesome. And it's funny because I told you I read about three quarters of, a, of the book. I'm about three quarters of the way through it. It's sitting right next to my recliner at home. Excellent. Good place for it. <laughs> and series. Well, it, you know, that's how I remind myself if the TV goes on at night uh, and I'm sitting there saying, really, I'm watching this mindless show. Why am I not yeah. putting in my half hour a day reading? So I pick up the book. Yeah. It, it is it is really a good book. It did not disappoint at all when I picked it up. You you say a lot of really good things in it. And I'm excited when I read it. And it, it gets me writing all kinds of margin notes and everything. So um, hopefully people have listened to the end of this episode and they do reach out to you for that book. Um, and that's awfully generous of you as a thank you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you having me on, Chris. You're doing a great job. 
very engaging, insightful discussion. You asked great questions so that I could get my crazy ideas out there. And I thank you for that. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for being a guest. I really appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap, but not the end. Next step, be sure to take action on something you heard here today. Thanks for listening to the Scene to Lead podcast. If you'd like to connect for any reason, email me at drchrissj at gmail.com or catch me on Twitter at Dr. C.S. Jones. If you've gotten any value from the Scene to Lead podcast, you can help me and other leaders create a world-class environment through a teacher-centric approach by subscribing to the show, leaving an honest rating and review, and sharing this episode on social media with your most valuable takeaway. Learn more at drcsjones.blog. Continue to improve and go have a successful week. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Jigsaw Learning. Whether you lead at the school, district, or division level, you're serving a wide array of students and you know that no one person has all the answers when it comes to meeting each of their needs. That's why Jigsaw Learning helps leaders and their staff and faculty to develop a collaborative approach. Every child deserves a team. And when you put together the pieces of effective collaboration, you can realize that team's full potential. Connection, relationships, and authentic collaboration are at the foundation of Jigsaw Learning's work. Through professional learning presented on-site, online, or a blend of both, Jigsaw's team of experienced learning associates works with you to develop a personalized plan to help collaborative response thrive in your organization. Learn why educators have described working with Jigsaw Learning as powerful, wonderful, and beneficial for all students. Visit jigsawlearning.ca and connect with the team for information. That's jigsawlearning.ca. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.